International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 6. The Hero's Wound and Theology of Film. Action, reaction. Who drives this story? Okay. The one who acts. In Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who is the hero of the story? You have two main characters, but who is the hero? The one who chooses, the one who acts, the one who makes decisions. That is called, he has a name, and his name is Butch Cassidy. The Sundance Kid makes no decisions. He reacts. He's a main character, but he is not a hero. You understand? He just reacts. He doesn't say, let's go to Bolivia. He doesn't hold the gang together. He doesn't make any decisions like that. He's a reactor. He's not a hero in, in, in the terms you're talking about. The hero in your piece has to grow. By definition, the hero has to grow. Um, for a long time, this was one of the areas of contention. Uh, the great teachers basically said that, no, that's not necessarily true, and so on. And, and they were wrong. Uh, now there's a widespread agreement that the hero has to go, and there's a simple reason for that, which is that uh, the audience don't want to go through hell for two hours for nothing to come out the end of that. So he goes through all this and learns nothing? There's no self-revelation in this? Uh, so in any great drama, certainly, the hero has to grow. So one of the questions you're going to ask is, who grows in this film? Who changes? Who goes through this journey and changes? And then you have to ask yourself the question, where will the hero grow? Okay, and I'm going to put a word up on the blackboard here in very big letters. And the word is wound. Your hero will grow in the place of his wound. Okay. So the hero's wound is something you will always consider. It's like, it's one of those things you put up on a piece of paper and put it right in front of your eyes because that's going to be the place of his growth in the film in the place of his flaws, in the place of his sin. That's where he's going to grow, in the place of his brokenness, in the place of his blindness, okay? And um, not only that, I'm going to put another word up here. This is a word that should bring joy to your heart. He's going to grow most or the most important place he's going to grow, is in the place of his moral wound. I mean, hero can have all sorts of wounds, psychological wound, physical wound sometimes. Uh, but really, uh, film, ultimately, the place of, uh, that the hero will grow is in the place of his moral wound. Okay? The place where he needs to, to grow most. It's very interesting, this. Do you remember I was saying the audience are moral? When you um, get involved with visual media, you'll hear the word jeopardy used a lot. Uh, you know, people will say things like, you've got to put your hero in jeopardy, at risk. 
it means to put your hero at risk in danger. And um, at its crassest level uh, in television, you have a situation where before the adverts, you have to have a cliffhanger where in some form or other, the hero literally is hanging by his fingernails from a cliff. It doesn't mean he's literally doing that, but it means he's in danger. And then the audience will survive the adverts. Very crass, crude approach to writing and structure and so on, but very prevalent. And what people fail to see often in this world is that, yes, it's important that uh, your hero be in danger sometimes and so on, but the danger that the audience most fear is moral. The danger the, the audience most dread, okay, is that the hero will lose his own soul. That's really important. That's, uh, if you don't know that, you don't know much about audiences. Okay, they're moral, and their greatest fear is that the hero will lose his own soul. Now, in life, they may cheat, they may wheedle, they may not care about soul, they may not believe in even in the soul, but once they go into that theater, into that cinema, they totally believe in heaven and hell and the loss of soul. It's very interesting. Now, they may not call them those terms. Do you, do you understand? But these are, are grave words. And if the hero wins at the expense of his own soul, the audience are devastated. It's their deepest fear. And, um, and remember that the dynamic storytelling is driven by a simple axis of hope, dread, hope, fear. Your audience is hoping, fearing, hoping, fearing. Very simple axis, okay? Okay? Dynamic. We have to ask, where is the need or the wound in this film? Who's got the wound? Uh, because the hero certainly is going to have a wound. Other people will have wounds in your film, but the hero certainly will have a wound. Uh, another question, so you ask who's got the wound, you then ask who's got the problem. So when the film begins, who's got a problem? Uh, this is different from the wound and it's different from the want. The want is what's going to drive the film right through the arc of the story. The wound we've talked about. The problem is quite different. The problem is usually the kind of circumstances that the hero finds himself in at the beginning of the film, maybe in the middle of the film, uh, and it's more minor than a wound, certainly more minor than a want, but it's fairly important. And um, so, so, for example, uh, a film, since we're talking about Tom Cruise, a film, say, that you might all know since it won about 10 Academy Awards, is a film called Rain Man, okay? And Rain Man is an interesting film, which later in the, the week maybe I can talk to you a little bit about, because... If you had to write that film, uh, you would probably cringe. You know, you, you'd actually say, I couldn't do this. I mean, it's, it's about an autistic savant who can't communicate. And the main character is also more or less autistic socially. You know, he's a real pig of a person, in, in quotes. You know, as he abuses people, he lies, he cheats. You know, he's a driven person. He doesn't see people. So if people have said to you, what do you think of him as a hero? You'd say, oh, big problem, eh? Big problem of empathy here. You know, the first 10 pages, the audience are going to be saying, why should we care? Why should we care? And so what you do is you give him a problem. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's so crude, isn't it? There are also about 
64 empathetic devices you can involve to help the audience bond with him. Okay. But you certainly would give him a problem. So they give Tom Cruise a problem down the, the front of Rain Man. And the problem is this, that he can't get his nice Ferraris out of Hock that he's trying to sell because the, the customs and exercise people won't, won't sort of clear them in terms of their exhaust. You know, they're, they're, they're too pollution. They're causing too much pollution or something, whatever it is. He's got a problem, and this problem's going to hang over him for the first half of the film. After that, they settle the problem, which is that it's all fallen through, because by then you're in the middle of the film and you couldn't care less about his problem. You've moved on to the heart of the film, do you understand? But that problem has bonded you to this liar, this cheater, this wicked person, as it were, because you feel for his problem. You empathize, you say, oh, he's just like me. He has a problem, I have a problem. <laughs> okay. So, we are talking uh, yesterday, where we ended up was we were talking about the world of the hero, the world of the film, uh, the way the hero interacts with his world. And one of the major areas you have to look at, and probably I should, I won't say much about it because it doesn't mean much to you, but uh, at this stage, but I like to attribute areas of craft to people. So. Uh, McKee, I've talked about, there are areas where he's great in. Michael Haig is probably the best uh, entry-level teacher in the world in, in terms of screenwriting. He, uh, he's brilliant on the want, the hero's want. Um, this area we're about to talk about now, uh, the, the hero's world and the way he interacts with other people, there's a, a teacher called John Truby in the States who's absolutely great on this area. Just as Truby, I think, is one of the people who's worked hardest and most consistently on self-revelation of the hero. Um, just want to say those things because let's attribute credit where credit is due. So the world of the hero. Um, a number of questions you must ask yourself. A major question is, how does the hero affect his world? And parallel with that, how does he affect the people around him? Not just the immediate people, you know, it's not just his immediate family, but how does he start to affect the world around him? And why you're going to ask this question is that the answer to this question is going to give you some idea of the width of the power of this story. So, for example, when you look at, say, a film like Rain Man, one of the questions, if you were to put this question, like, how does the hero affect the world around him? How does he affect the relationships around him? Uh, one of the answers you come up with, he affects his brother, but he doesn't actually affect many other people. So his self-revelation is actually uh, an important one, a major one, but the, the scope of it is narrow. It's not one of the great self-revelations, if you see something. Because the great self-revelations actually start to affect the whole world around you. They start to change everyone. And why this is important is, um, 
if the hero does not start to affect the world around him, or at least, as in Rainman, the immediate relationships around him, just as he has changed, he changes others, then you're not going to change your audience. Okay. So what you're actually looking for is breadth in the film. Now, one of the ways you, you, you do this is the hero doesn't just have one wound, okay? He has many flaws, okay? And as you go through the film, uh, there won't be just a major self-revelation by the end of the journey, okay? You'll have sort of minor uh, discoveries, minor revelations, sort of what we would call small epiphanies, okay? In our terms, small epiphanies where uh, he encounters the truth about himself, and it changes him. And he'll encounter that truth in the area of his minor wounds, his flaws, and so on. And so one of the exercises, uh, you can do this or not, uh, it's, these kind of exercises are more important at the beginning when you're a novice than later on. Later on, you'll do them instinctively. Uh, but when you're beginning, you might want to list out the flaws of your character. His wound, what are the flaws? Make a list of them. Okay. Just as when you think about your story, you'll want to make a list of the choices he makes, of his actions. Because remember, uh, in the scriptures, uh, it's the same. But in, in film and in story, the decisions and action of the character are the same. He, remember what I said? If he doesn't act, he hasn't decided. So make a list of his decisions and actions. Um, make sure that decision always leads to action. Or if not, uh, explore why in the character. Because that is a flaw in the character. Uh, just as I said scripturally, uh, literally in the scriptures, to hear is to obey. That's what it literally means. To hear means to obey in the Old Testament. If you don't obey, you haven't heard. That's all it means. In our, as I say, in our Greek upbringing, we don't think like this. There's a gap, and we can live in the gap and say, oh, well, I hear you, but I'll think about it. Maybe tomorrow I'll change and obey. And it's very interesting because the scriptures and, and the Semite mind and, and Jesus just looks at you and says, oh, you just didn't hear. Because to hear is to obey. And so to, to uh, in film, in, in story, to decide is to act. Decision and action are the same. And as in life, I mean, what we're going to examine this morning uh, in detail is, is that, <laughs> you know, say you're in pastoral work or something like that, do not look at what people say. Or if you're in ministry, as, you know, do not look at what people say. <laughs> look at what they do. What they do will tell you their priorities, okay? Um, I speak eloquently about reforming my life in terms of health. We belong to a health club at no little expense. And um, how often have I been there in the last six months? I can count it on less than two fingers, Mandy. <laughs> One finger? Very good. Uh, this tells you about my priorities. This tells you about my need for true conversion as opposed to lip service to the idea. 
Okay. The good news is I truly am going to change. <laughs> Not least because of all the women in my life. <laughs> you know, my wife, my secretary, <laughs> all sitting on my head. Uh, but as Patricia says, whatever grace God gives you in your life, that's the bit you have to use. You know? So, um, okay, so look at what people do, not what they say. Um, Patricia has a great saying. She says, what you see is what you get. It's fairly common. And, and she just uses it again and again. She just says, what you see is what you get. So if someone lies and cheats in this area, if someone speaks badly of someone over here, be sure they're probably speaking badly of you. <laughs> if someone uh, wants to join your group and they haven't sorted out the problem in their last group, be sure you're going to have a problem on your hands in three months. Be sure they bring their life with them. What you see is what you get. Okay? So um, make a list of the flaws. Make a list of the decisions. And then uh, make a list of the opposite to those things. So what the, would the opposite to a flaw look like or a wound look like? What would the opposite to the decisions the character is making look like? What would it be like if he made the opposite decisions? And push those to the extreme. In other words, push both the decision to its logical conclusion and the action you have your character making a story, and then push the opposite to its most logical uh, conclusion as well, its most extreme conclusion, and see what you get. In a sense, what I'm saying to you uh, about the self-revelation is you have to make a judgment about how good that self-revelation is. If it just affects your character, it may be a great self-revelation, but it's a limited one. The ones you are trying to strive for are the ones that change other people. Okay? In terms of the logic of your decisions, when you make lists of decisions and actions of the character, you'll often, um, yeah, in story structure, you'll often hear the advice, begin at the end of your story, begin with the end, because you need to know where the choices of your character logically and inevitably have led him. So you begin at the end, and, and people will sort of say, what you have to do, in a sense, is begin at the end and then sort of move backwards through the film. If that helps you, that's good. I, I tend to look at the end a lot and move backwards. If it doesn't help you, don't worry. Just, just do what helps you. But remember this. Remember this that you're probably almost certainly always going to have to rewrite Act 1. So if you begin with the beginning and work through, by the time you get to the end, uh, and by the time you eventually see where you're going, you're, you're going to have to, at some point in other words, you're going to have to go back through your film and change everything to suit where the hero ends up logically and inevitably. Because his journey must be ine inevitable. It mustn't be fatalistic. I'm not saying that at all. I'm actually saying that his choices must be true, inexorable, and logical. In other words, if you start to give them fruit and consequences that are not logical, the audience will leave your film. They'll just say, we don't believe that. It's not true. That's not what would happen. Um, and we'll see how, in a bit, we'll see how uh, the audience in this classic drama structure must not come out of your film with any questions unanswered. Kazan... Uh, says about endings, endings are everything. Endings tell you whether you have a film or not. Endings tell you whether you're a good writer or not. 
says, the end is the sum of it all. And we'll see how for him, in a minute, we'll look at how by the end of your film, your hero has to be in a situation of mortal cost. That doesn't mean to say the issue facing him is literal death, but it actually means morally he is in a position of mortal cost. And it's true, you know, it's, um, to write great endings, you have to be a great writer. And writers indeed, I mean, most of the writers I know spend at least 50%, 70% of their time working on the endings, the last act of their film. One of the things we sort of touched on yesterday, which I want to reiterate again, are um, the attributes of the hero uh, in terms of cowardice or in terms of courage. Um, at the beginning of the film, or in the first act of your film, the hero can look like a coward, can indeed be a coward. But by the end of the film, the hero cannot be a coward because he has to actually make choices and take actions that actually take him into the heart of his fears, uh, his wound, his journey to get what he wants. So ultimately, uh, your hero will prove to have a very strong will, a very strong ego that will prevail. And do remember, <laughs> if he gives up, if he quits, you have no film. Now, as we'll see, we'll come to a point um, which all these are jargon terms, you know. So ignore the jargon and just try and get to the truth of it. Different teachers call it different things. Some people call it the point of double death, okay? Uh, some people call it the point of absolute failure. Uh, traditionally, there is a point, and it's at the end of Act Two, when your hero, in terms of his want, faces a situation where he can never get it anymore. He's lost. And it usually is at the end of Act Two. It, it, it means he's absolutely lost. So do you remember in Kramer versus Kramer, where is the point of the double death in Kramer? It's there. Right. So the, du the double de death is where he, he's lost. Okay, he's lost his son. He's never going to get his son. This is at the end of Act Two, right where it should be. Uh, and it's the low point of the film. Okay. Self-pity is a big no-no for your hero. He can indulge in it, but for not too, too long. Okay. And it basically is going to be long mainly in the first half of your film. It's just not how it's going to be, because if there's too much self-pity, there can't be decisions and there can't be action. You know, it's, see, film's very like life, or story's very like life. That's why it's so powerful. That's why people are touched by it. And people who are full of self-pity in life never do anything. They just drag other people into their pit. Say, come down here and let's have a, a little comfort together where we bitch about the world, you know, and we be victims together down here in the pit. Again, I'm not saying this for judgment. People are victims for lots of reasons. I'm just saying that self-pity has no energy to create in it. Okay? It's true in life. It's true in story. <coughs> and um, 
in terms of self-pity, in terms of cowardice, as I said, suicide is the great sin in film. It's a great moral sin in the sense of this is the great no-no that your hero would do. In terms of the taboo of suicide, of course, there may be a point in the film where your hero literally looks it in the face. So down the front of a not very good film called Lethal Weapon, uh, you see that Mel Gibson is literally looking it in the face in the form of a gun because he's lost his wife, he's in the pits. Uh, so that's where the film begins. That is never where the film could end. We are going to look at the theology of film this morning, and it's going to be very interesting, very interesting situation. So here I am facing a room full of Christians, and Christians by and large know nothing about the theology of film, and Hollywood knows everything about the theology of film. It's a very interesting situation. So Hollywood has intrinsically grasped the story at the heart of the Gospels, and understood that is the nature of story. It has understood that if you're going to have resurrection, you better have death. And Christians are real namby-pamby in this area, and we'll see why technically in a minute. Uh, Christians never take things to the limit. They never take things to the utter depths, okay? And as a result, their resurrections always seem facile and cheats, dishonest. So the world rejects them. It sort of spews them out. It says, because they're lukewarm. Do you remember Jesus at the Revelation? Because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out. You're neither hot nor cold. And Christian writing, by and large, is neither hot nor cold. Okay? It's lukewarm, and its, it's resurrections, its third acts, are nearly always dishonest. They're cheap grace. They're illogical. They're not based in character. And... Um, it's very serious. Okay. I don't say these things lightly. I say them not from a place of judgment, because why should people know if they haven't been taught? But I do say them from a place of grief. I don't like watching films that I know that their target audience is never going to be reached, and millions of dollars has been spent on them. It seems to me a waste of good money, time, and energy. Okay. So when we look at Kramer, we start to see some of the, the great questions that you, before you write a word. Basically, the ideal is that everything I'm talking about, you do all this before you write a single word. You haven't even dared to pick up your pen yet. You're just thinking. <coughs> and someone was saying yesterday about time. You remember the question about time? How do we do this? And it's a question that Dogs, writers, dogs, creative people. Um, Bill Nicholson, I remember, who has, has written many big th things now, who, who wrote Now, who wrote the film Shadowlands, who... What else? He did First Night, Terrible... He's just bringing out his first film that he's directing, which has good word of mouth on it. But he used to have to get up. He worked for the BBC... And he used to get up about five in the morning and he would write from six to nine before going to work. Okay, that's the way he did his, the creative side of him. But what I'd say to you in general is this. Um, I, I was talking to someone last month who, who wanted me to do a project for them and, and they were basically saying, well, the budget isn't an issue. Whatever it costs, we'll pay. 
And I said, well, you don't understand. It's not money. You know, that's not the problem. The problem is ideas, the quality of ideas. <laughs> and people don't get this. And, I was, and, so, and they kept repeating that. And they're saying, but money isn't the problem. <laughs> the budget, whatever the budget is, fine. And I said, well, money isn't the problem. There's a point where money is a problem and you need, money does decide the quality that you do things at. But the real problem is in here. Okay? So what you have to do is actually focus your energy at the level of ideas. Instead of wildly writing, and <laughs> you must think. You can write if you can think. And the great ideas come from thought. They come from brainstorming. They come from rigor. They come from discipline. And through that discipline comes inspiration. First acquire infallible technique and then open yourself to inspiration. So um, how are you going to save time? By thinking. By thinking. That's the pain of it all. There's no way around that. If you want to be a great writer, you have to put your energy into thinking. 